Hi, everyone. I'm Andrew. And I'm Michael. And this is the Endurance Innovation Podcast. Hey, everybody, uh, and welcome back to Endurance Innovation. Uh, This week, I am happy to welcome our field correspondent, (laughs) Andrew Buckrell, back from from a stint at Eurobike. Uh, Andrew, how did it go? It went really well. Um, Aside from, as we discussed before recording this, I caught a cold from Scott Cooper, one of our previous guests. Um, So he infected a whole bunch of people. So if you have a cold right now, um, just blame it on him and I'll find a way to link it back. (laughs) So, uh, (laughs) But anyway, aside from the cold, uh, which you can probably hear in my voice a little bit right now, it was super interesting to get over there. Um, it is an industry-only show, um, so it's for the general public, it's a little bit harder to get in there. But if you do have a chance, I'd really recommend going at some point. It's uh, it's super interesting to see the new offerings that different companies have, just how the industry is evolving and adapting to different trends. Um, and I guess we'll we'll be discussing some of those trends here. Yeah, it sounds like a, a bike nerd's you know dream. Uh, <laughs> it's it's now on my bucket list. Plus a trip to Germany, right? Who can uh, who can argue with that? Oh yeah, beautiful area of Germany. Uh, the only problem is the town itself is like twenty thousand people, so there's no accommodations. There's sixty thousand visitors to a town of twenty thousand, so it's like an hour and a half drive every morning to get in. <laughs> Nuts! While you were there, you were um, recording little bits of audio and, and talking about some of the more interesting things that you saw there. Um, okay, so let's jump right in. Hi everyone, it's Andrew and I'm live here at Eurobike in Friedrichshafen, Germany. And this year I'm going to be walking the show floor just to see exactly what's going on with the kind of innovation they have in the industry. I think a great place to start is your uh, your coverage of the Innovation Awards. You sort of do a good high-level overview of some of the things that you liked and some of the things that we're going to cover in this episode. So let's uh, start there and let's have a listen. Uh, So there's some interesting technology that I've seen here, um, as you would expect at the Innovation Awards. But one thing that kind of caught my eye is just the number of alternative materials that I've seen in manufacturing. So there's an e-bike here that's actually made out of, uh, it looks like machined plywood. um, And it's uh, it's using some alternative construction methods, so glues and and other epoxies to hold it together. So it actually looks like they're making this step towards sustainability. Uh, with a lot of the modern technology that people are expecting now. So it's kind of neat to see something like that. I think it's going to be a while before this actually catches on, but um, it is good to see companies making this first step in that direction. One of the other things I've noticed is just the amount of integration you see with the e-bike designs. There's Because every manufacturer has essentially an e-bike that they're offering, um, there's a lot of competitiveness in how everything is integrated and looks a lot more slick than it used to. There's a bike I'm looking at right now, the uh, Grey P, or Gripe, I'm not sure (laughs) what the uh, pronunciation is, Um, but it's got a neat application, a neat location for the the battery cell. So it's quite large, it's 700 watt hours, and it's, uh, it almost looks like a suspension member. On top of that, the other thing I've seen with a lot of the integration is just how the motors are built into the bottom bracket. 
there's uh, a lot more accessibility to the cooling, which becomes an issue at higher sustained power levels. Uh, as well, the batteries themselves seem to be more accessible for swapping out. So if you carry a spare battery or if you want to take it out for security, um, there's a lot of options there. So it's, it is neat to see them not as an afterthought with the e-bikes, but more as designed from the ground up. ABS is something that made its first introduction with uh, road vehicles, so cars or motorcycles, primarily for safety. So there was a rear wheel, rear wheel anti-lock braking system, if I can say that, um, that was used for pickup trucks. And it was basically used because when you have an unloaded bed of a pickup truck, the rear wheels would lock up quite easily and it was causing stability issues so they decided okay we need to do something about this so they made it so that the the, the locking wasn't an issue anymore um, then people realized well this actually improves controllability quite a bit and reduces potential braking distances so why not make a, a better system for the entire car and obviously that's evolved and now it's integrated into the full vehicle di dynamics or uh, stability system for cars, but it hasn't really made its way over to bikes yet. What I'm seeing is a few potential systems. So uh, Blue Brake is the manufacturer, um, and they've got a basically an integrated hydraulic accumulator inside the uh, inside the frame. So you've got an ABS system that's hidden away where you can't see it, and it will allow you to have likely safer braking, for sure safer braking, especially on the front wheel. Um, because you don't risk the lock up and having the wheel wash out on you. But um, I also see this being a big benefit when you're dealing with off-road. So if it, uh, if it does make its way over to the, the mountain bike side of things, it'll be interesting to see how it's applied. Um, there are times when you want to lock and slide your wheel, but uh, there are other times when having that, that stability might be a benefit for racing. So it's, uh, it's neat to see this kind of trickling down from the automotive industry. So we'll see where it goes in the next couple of years. Speaking of the proliferation of e-bikes, um, especially on high-end bikes, I'm looking at a Villiers Triestina, um, and it basically looks like a normal road bike, except for a little charging point near the bottom bracket. So they've got a battery fully integrated into, I think, the down tube. And they're using it to drive a hub-powered or a, a rear hub motor. Um, and the really interesting thing that I don't know I fully agree with, but they've got it laced into a carbon wheel, which seems questionable to me, um, simply for the fact that uh, you're not really that concerned about weight anymore if you're able to apply a whole bunch of electric power to the, the drive of the bike. Um, but nonetheless, it's interesting to see this kind of making its appearance in higher-end bikes. And we'll see where it goes. I know, um, I know keeping track of some of this technology, especially as it becomes more integrated, is a big challenge for rulemakers for the UCI just to keep the, the playing field level. Um, but yeah, I guess it's, it's interesting to see the application. We'll see if it becomes more of an issue. Um, obviously, detection is what people are concerned about. Um, but most of these devices, because they're not 100% efficient, will have some kind of heat signature. So it will be something that can be seen externally, but it's just a question of when people start to apply this uh, to racing illegally, of course. Um, but that being said, there are the, um, the e-mountain bike series that, uh, that people are racing in now. And we'll see if it makes its way over to road as well, because it might keep things interesting if you have the ability to store a certain amount of energy uh, and put in a surge 
um, and use that as kind of an energy boost the same way that uh, some of the Formula One rules are set up. Um, it could make it a little bit more dynamic. Um, it could level the playing field, but that remains to be seen. I think it'll be highly dependent on the, the way that the rules are implemented. The thought of never having to pump a tire again is definitely intriguing. Uh, there is a new product here that basically uses your forward motion or your forward energy to create a pumping action within the tube, and it will keep it at the optimum pressure. Uh, my real question there is how it affects efficiency. If, it'd be interesting if it's something that can keep you at a target uh, pressure, um, especially as temperatures fluctuate or altitude fluctuates significantly. I'm here at the UVEX booth, and normally you wouldn't think of innovation coming in with uh, eyewear, but what I've seen here is actually, it's pretty obvious now that I think about it, but um, self-tinting or UV-tinting lenses for sunglasses. You've seen it a lot with, uh, with products like um, pres prescription glasses, but it, doesn't, it hasn't really made the transition over um, to, to more traditional eyewear. There have been some companies that have photochromic lenses, but certainly you rarely see them applied to something along the lines of a bike helmet. And I know uh, the integrated visors, uh, when, I've, I've, when I've been in races in the past, especially with a longer race, you deal with conditions that are changing throughout the day. So you don't want to be taking your sunglasses on and off and changing it just to adapt and to be able to see the road. Um, and especially looking at something like mountain biking where you're going between shadows in a treat area to open uh, exposed sunny areas, um, having the ability to, uh, to be able to continue seeing properly is actually a huge improvement for safety and for comfort. So I thought this was um, yeah, pretty obvious now that I think about it, but a very clever innovation nonetheless. You know what's what's interesting, Andrew, is that my very first ever pair of cycling specific quote unquote sunglasses were photochromic. So um, when you said this this technology isn't uh, super widely adopted, I thought, no, yeah, what are you talking about? I had them, I've had them for twelve years. But at the same time, if you think about helmet visors, which I totally agree are uh, a big deal now in the industry, I can't think of a single one. Yeah, it's um, it's quite interesting. Like the, I agree. After I recorded this, I thought, well, hold on, I've had some photochromic sunglasses myself, and like the transition lenses that you see are pretty common. Um, but just integrating this more into the helmet design, I think, is where the innovation comes in. Which seems like a small step, but uh, but it is there, and it it takes someone to think of it. So um, so I thought it's pretty useful because I've been in races where you start off and it's cloudy, and having a clear visor is great, and then it gets sunny by the end, especially like an Ironman distance where you're out there for four or five hours or six or seven. Um, <laughs> there's quite a good chance of having the weather change and the, the visibility <laughs> conditions changing. Yeah, I agree. I think it isn't it's not a huge mental leap to get there, but uh, you're right, the use case is absolutely there. So it's it's good to see somebody working on this. Mm -hmm. The other thing that I noticed was, um, I didn't specifically mention this here, but there's actually a variation of this technology, electrochromic coatings, which is putting a small charge into a, a film and it instantly dims. So this is the kind of thing that you see in movies sometimes where, you know, you tap on a window and it disappears or it, it goes completely opaque. Um, so this is a more interesting technology, especially if you're mountain biking, where you're going from uh, from like shadow treat area to bright sunlight to shadows, um, that adjustment can be difficult. And having these electrochromic lenses could be a real game changer for people. Cool. Patent pending, right? 
<laughs> Probably. <laughs> um, the next, uh, the next bit, you got really excited about some socks. So uh, let's uh, <laughs> let's switch to the audio from the show there. I'll be the first to admit that textiles aren't really my strong point, but uh, there's a really neat demonstration that I just saw. Uh, it's from a company called Dex Shell. Um, and we'll put some links up in the show notes for this, but um, basically they've got a very waterproof looking sock. So they, the demonstration itself is extremely obvious. Um, they've got a, it looks like um, almost one of the anti-contamination chambers that you see where you can work with your hands. You've got these rubber gloves that go inside the chamber and you can manipulate a, a biological sample or something, but it's full of water and they've got this sock that's submerged and uh, it's been sitting there all day, I guess. And you stick your hand in the other side, and it's, it's pretty much dry. Um, so my first question to them was about breathability, but uh, apparently it's um, quite breathable, so it doesn't feel that much different than having um, just any other sock on, and especially if you're looking for something in the winter months when you need that extra protection. Uh, it's, it would be a really neat solution, because I've dealt with wet feet before, and it's no fun. And especially as I'm getting more into trail running, uh, this is something I'm, I'm very keen on getting. So I'm going to track down where they're actually distributed, what stores, and I'll hopefully have some information about this shortly. One of the cool things about these socks is just the, the ability to, um, to protect yourself from water. And going back to the trail running episode that we did, um, especially when you're dealing with early or late season, when you've got like muddy or snowy conditions, I think these could be a real game changer for people. Uh, breathability is the huge concern. Um, and I didn't actually get a chance to test them, but their demonstration, having it like submerged in water, uh, that was pretty cool. That's, I mean, very telling if someone's willing to have a sock submerged in water and let you put your hand in it. Yeah, super cool. My kind of question about using them and running would be durability and comfort. Um, obviously, uh, you know your typical hard shell material. Your, you know, your. Uh, I forget what the what the actual material is that they t generally use for the Gore-Tex style membranes, but it's not incredibly supple. Um, so I'd wonder what the what the comfort would be for running because I'm. Like if I'm on the bike, I can ride sockless and do often, or I can really wear, you know, a wool stocking and ride and be quite comfortable. But if I'm running, I'm pretty sensitive to what, uh, what, what sock I'm wearing, mostly because it's, you know, there's a lot more friction when you're running and impact load. Um, so I'd be curious to see how comfy these, these are running and also what the durability is like. Cause I, I blow through my running socks because again, of that, of that extra friction. And so if I'm going to spend a hundred dollars on a pair of, uh, high end membrane uh, socks, uh, I don't know that I'd want to be running too, too much in them. Yeah, great question. I don't have any specifics about that, um, but I'd be very willing to try. Keeping your feet wet, even if it costs a lot. I know there are some cases where, especially at the end of a run, where it's cold and your feet are wet and everything's soaked and you're uncomfortable, I think your value goes up quite a bit in what you place in something like that. Fair point. It could be kind of like a race-only sort of uh, scenario. Yeah. Where you yeah, exactly. Really want to be comfy. So next we go from our feet to our heads uh, with uh, a, an interesting bit of integration. The idea of a smart helmet doesn't seem particularly new, but there's a company here called uh, Cerebellum who has a very interesting offering. 
it's basically integrating a whole bunch of technology, different sensors into the helmet itself. Um, there's a combination of different cameras, accelerometers. Um, it's got a sensor to detect hydration levels, um, which I'm a little skeptical about, but uh, it's, it's able to tell you based on how much you sweat, whether or not you should be drinking. Um, but the interesting thing for safety is that it will automatically upload a lot of the data. So if you get in an accident, there's a front and rear facing camera. Um, and if you end up in the hospital, for example, this is all uploaded data that can be used to figure out uh, what happened in an accident, um, possibly what kind of injury you might have based on how it happened, but also it gives a little bit more accountability because I've heard a lot of stories about hit and runs lately with cyclists. Um, which is a very sad story, and it, it forces people off the road. But I think knowing that there's a little bit more accountability with uh, with these kind of accidents and that someone might be watching you, hopefully we'd see less of these hit-and-run incidents happening. So it's um, very cool to see this kind of technology making its way forward. I, I think it'll be maybe a little while before it sees widespread adoption, but it's certainly an interesting idea, and I like where it's heading. The, the interesting thing I find here is just the, the smart technology that we're seeing with everything. So it's not just having discrete components anymore. It's, it's more like a, an ecosystem of you've got your helmet connected to your bike, connected to video, connected to your phone, connected to a whole bunch of things, your lights. Um, so once you get that full integration, that's when things really start working well together and just becoming an ecosystem rather than you know, having to connect individual components. So I like that because it, uh, just the connectivity that everyone's seeing, it just, it simplifies things in some ways. Um, but the really cool thing about this was the video. So if you get in an accident, um, the, the last two minutes of video are uploaded to the cloud. So that's not going to protect you from the accident, but what it will protect you with is the accountability for drivers. Like if people, if drivers are knowing that they're being recorded, um, they're less likely to run from a scene because there's a lot of hit and runs that you hear about with cyclists. Um, so even reducing that, which would then lead to a cultural shift and hopefully a little bit more awareness, even if it's fear of hitting someone, that's, I think, a good shift for cyclists. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, you'd have to you'd have to make sure that the users of the road are now aware that cyclist helmets are recording them, which, you know, I, I think at a, a, as a default position currently is not one that people understand. But uh, certainly if the awareness was there, that you, there's a strong case for it. Yeah, but even using a parallel from 10 or 15 years ago, um, if someone, say, was saying something, you know, a celebrity was saying something on the side of the road, they would expect to just have a couple of reports of that. But now you expect everyone to have cell phone coverage of that. They're going to record the video. They're going to record what they're seeing. And that's going to go on social media. So that cultural shift has changed. And I think it's changed people's expectations a little bit in what they do out in public because they know they're being recorded. No, you're absolutely right. And that, that shift happened fairly quickly, right? So then now we have, uh, now we have that, you know, that culture of, of not forgetting that everything is recorded and that, uh, you know, once these things start coming out, um, once you have cases where this, uh, this kind of video is being used to, you know, to find the guilty parties and the, the word gets out, I think that it will spread quite quickly. I think you're right there. Yeah, unfortunately, it's still kind of a reactive technology where it's um, after the fact as opposed to preventing an injury. 
But right. yeah, if it ultimately leads to improved safety, then I'm all for it. But at the same time, there's some integrated lighting in this helmet too, which I think is great. There's there are some good studies done that uh, show that you know lights that are that are high up, especially lights that are moving, are more visible. So you know your helmet's obviously the highest part of you the rider and also your head moves more than the bicycle does generally so having a light on a helmet is actually a very good way of uh, of proactive safety yeah that's that's a very good point um the minor concern i have about that is if someone's really actively turning their head and looking side to side it might not be clear if there's like a signal or something like that saying i'm turning left i'm turning right right that might be a little unclear to drivers or other people on the road but at least it'll it'll it's noticeable, right? You know, our yeah. our our brains are wired to notice movement. So it's somebody turning their head will at least alert the driver that something something or somebody is there. Yeah, absolutely. So it was quite interesting to see innovation around something that you think of being just a very standard product, like the the aero bars themselves. Um, they've been round and bent tubes, and that was a lot of that was driven by manufacturing. But seeing carbon become more popular and cheaper and easier to use. Um, there's more of these integrated designs, which are now kind of contouring your body. So the the pads themselves spreading out over more of the distance of the, the extension, um, that'll alleviate some of the pressure you feel on your elbows, especially on an Ironman race. So a great example was uh, Patrick Lange last year. Um, and you brought up this, this point previously off air, Michael, but um, he had these long extensions that were basically 3D printed uh, to match his forearms exactly. So the, the the whole area that was supporting his weight was much larger and force over area is pressure. Um, so you're reducing the pressure on the on your elbows, on everything. So it just makes it easier on you. Um, yeah, so I, I thought it was very cool to see some of these new uh, designs come out. And there's just a lot of different uh different geometries to take care of. So the, the, I guess the, the big thing there was that, um, there's going to be probably a couple of years of determining, okay, what the best profile is, uh, how do we match the most people as opposed to just the pros that we 3d scan for these designs. One of the trends I've noticed is actually a bit of a variation in what extensions, aero extensions look like for tri bikes and TT bikes. So traditionally, most of what you see is just a round tube that's bent in different ways. And while some companies were getting pretty creative with the um, the orientation uh, that they were um, that they were using for hand positioning, uh, what I've seen lately is just this embracing of different shapes. So they'll have something that molds against your forearms or follows the contours of your body very closely. Um, so there's a number of manufacturers who offer something like this that's a little bit more of an organic shape. Um, but there's a few other things that I noticed that were kind of clever too. Very simple ideas, but I thought it, um, uh, it was actually quite interesting to see. Um, and some of the, the best innovations are the simplest, but the ends of the aero bars or the ends of the extensions that you hold onto, having them on a pivot so you can get the proper wrist angle, um, so Profile Design, I believe, uh, was the one manufacturer that had this. And I thought, that's so simple, but it's actually kind of a cool idea. So you can get, you know, the perfect, most comfortable wrist angle. Some people like to hold on to a fully horizontal bar. Some people like to have a big bend in it. But this takes care of both people because uh, you can just set it to whatever you want. Right. And um, this is something that's, you know, of, of intense interest to me personally because, um 
fitting bikes, you know, you're always trying to optimize, you're, you're, you're trying to optimize aerodynamics and comfort and power production, right? So comfort and power production generally go hand in hand, but they uh, don't always go hand in hand with, <laughs> with aerodynamics. Um, so being able to find a solution that, that takes both of those boxes or all three of those boxes is, is really, is really awesome. And also in long course racing, and we've talked about this on a number of, uh, on a number of shows, one of the biggest impediments to staying in aero and being, you know, racing to your aerodynamic potential is discomfort, right? You know, you're, you're in there for four five, six hours, um, in that position. And, you know, from time to time, you're going to have to get out and stretch, which is fine. But if you get to the point where you're so uncomfortable that you have to sit up for prolonged periods of time, then your super amazing aero position is no longer worth a fig. Uh, so anything that improves rider comfort for me is actually a really big deal. Um, and these, uh, these pads that spread that, uh, spread that load out over a greater surface area, that's, that to me is a big win. The other thing I want to point out that wasn't actually in this recording and wasn't at Eurobike, um, but I noticed it watching the coverage for Ironman Nice uh, or for the 70.3 World Championships there. Lucy Charles had something called Speed Bar on uh, her extensions. So um, it's actually a, because I looked into the company, but it's a fully custom bar that is matching your exact arm profile. So they're pretty pricey. Yep. Um, I think they were 3,000 euros when I looked at their website. Oh, is that what they were? I, I've, see, I've seen them too. They're, were they Speed Bar or 51 Speed Shop? There's a couple of companies out there that are kind of doing similar things. Yeah, so doing- this one was speedbar.nl is their website. Okay. Um, there's yep. limited English on there. Um, I think they're just kind of getting their website sorted out and they mostly cater to pros. Um, and I was actually talking to our friend David Tilbury Davis about this earlier, just before the recording. Um, but there's going to be about maybe 10 pros using them at Kona. So it's actually... Cool. 10 out of 100, basically. So it's not a bad proportion of the the athletes. So it'll be really interesting to see how these ultra-custom designs work out. Ultimately, the biggest impediment uh, is the cost. 3,000 euros, even for someone who's got a fairly unlimited budget, um, they're going to see that as a big, a big spend for relatively small aero gain. For sure. And there's, you know, there's no shortage of folks in our sport that have unlimited budgets or it feels like that. Um, But at the same time, yeah, if you ever look at, you know, if you think about your your dollar per watt sort of savings, um, it's that's a hard case to make because also it's subjective, right? It's a you're you're trying to address there's probably a a, a small aerodynamic advantage to them, but primarily it's a it's a comfort advantage. And that is hard to quantify because you could learn to be comfortable riding on tiny little pads like the, you know, like in the old days. Um, (laughs) It'll take more time. But then how do you how do you quantify that uh, that advantage? So dropping, you know, 4,000 Canadian, give or take on that, uh, on that innovation or that, on that, uh, on that aftermarket part. Yeah. Unless you're sponsored by those guys, it's uh, it's a tough sell for sure. Absolutely. Yeah. But very cool. Nonetheless. Next you, uh, you talked to and looked at some, uh, offshore manufacturers. <laughs> offshore is a, uh, very politically correct way of putting it, but, uh, <laughs> yeah, let's take a listen. So I've just walked through the area where a lot of Chinese manufacturers have set up. And a lot of people look at this as um, maybe a lower quality of uh, supply. But the reality is 95% of the, the major manufacturers are using 
one of these sub-manufacturers for some component. So it is interesting to see the variety and the offerings that these people have. Um, the other thing that's kind of interesting for me is looking at some of the frames that are available. I've heard stories about uh, open mold frames where um, they're one third the cost or a quarter the cost of something that you would buy from a major name brand manufacturer. Um, but with some of these open mold companies, it may be the same company that's providing a, a slightly different frame design, but the manufacturing is actually on par with what you'd expect from uh, from any other major name brand. So it's, um, it is interesting. It's a little bit harder to find exactly what you're looking for uh, if you're looking to build a custom, say, a custom road bike or a custom mountain bike. But uh, when you do the digging, there actually can be some very good value in this. Um, so there's there's no specific manufacturer I wanted to mention here, but it, it is interesting to see everything on display and just the cutaways of a lot of these frames. Um, and from what I've heard, they're, they are pretty high quality. So it's, uh, it's definitely worth a mention and worth a look if it's a road you're interested in going down. But um, again, it's not for everyone. And this one, it, actually, I have a, quite a bit of um, you know interest myself because there's a very strong value proposition there as you as you make the case for it. Um, my concern has always been with uh, you know things like quality control, uh, uh, customer service, and warranty service um, because in the in the very little bit of reading that I've done on my own on uh, on. Uh, these manufacturers that are kind of doing open mold work is that that has been lacking. Any sense from your end that uh, that has changed or improved? Well, the direct experience I have is not so much with open mold bikes, um, although I have heard anecdotally that some people have been very impressed with them. But I think it's it's a matter of finding reviews on that specific reseller. Um, but in general. I wouldn't say that the quality is worse than North America. The communication is possibly worse and the ability to communicate what you want or for them to understand what you want, that might be where the disconnect happens. Right. But in general, um, like we've we've had some parts from China and Taiwan manufactured for the trainers. Um, and this is something that we were a little bit apprehensive about at the start, but actually they turned into some of our favorite suppliers. and the turnaround time was actually quicker than a lot of our North American suppliers. So even though there was additional shipping cost, it was actually a very cost-effective solution and extremely high quality. Um, so we were quite surprised and impressed. And I think there is a legitimate uh, a legitimate worry that maybe some onshore manufacturers should have, um, just in that the quality is really approaching what we perceive as kind of the North American or European level of quality. Um, but the way I look at this from just a broader economic standpoint <clears throat> is if you imagine climbing a ladder, you want to stay kind of a rung above your competition. So for me, what the economic viewpoint should be is that we now shift. We can't compete on prices in North America and Europe. Right. So maybe we should look at shifting the skilled labor. So we have more highly skilled positions, more technical positions that the, the local people are, are using. And then the manufacturing can still be done offshore. And I think that is possibly one of the, the better implementations. Um, but I'm not an economist, so this is just my own personal standpoint. Isn't that like sort of what's happening now with you know North American brands? I mean, very no, but pretty much nobody builds, say, bike frames in, in, in North America anymore. They're all, they're all offshore, as you mentioned in your piece, that you know all the big names still manufacture in China or Taiwan. So isn't that exactly what's happening? Like the, you know, the, the engineering's done 
in North America or Europe, and then the sales and support is all local, and then the manufacturer is uh, is Asian. Um, isn't that what you're? Isn't that isn't that already what's happening? Yeah, and I think in the bike industry, that's actually. Yeah, ninety-five percent of that is being done currently. Like Taiwan is the hotspot for bike manufacturing. Um, the automotive industry is one that's a little bit slower to change, right. but um, and that's I think where most of the job losses, like people are concerned about that. But using the the bike industry is kind of a template for how it could go because it's smaller, less inertia. Um, that I see being like a good outlook for the future. So. Yeah, maybe it means there's a little bit more education required for people, but ultimately, as long as we stay kind of that one step ahead in terms of technical ability, um, that's how I personally believe the economy should shift. Um, but it's, to be honest, like I see it as being pointless trying to, to fight these low manufacturing costs because if you don't do it, your competitor will, and then you can't compete with the prices, and that's what it comes down to. Yeah, no, that's a fair point, and yeah, we're we're not economists, but uh, yeah, I, I find it. I can't think of a I can't think of a, a solution there either. I mean, protectionist tariffs. Again, we're we're sort of like stepping out of our waiting pool here, Andrew. But uh, I don't think that uh, that that's the way to go here. So from uh, from uh, offshore manufacturers to a European company that's got an innovative uh, folding bike. Let's have a listen there. I'm not usually one to be too impressed by the folding city bikes, but there's actually something pretty cool that I saw. Um, the manufacturer's name is Jiver, J-I-V-R, and they're out of Poland, and they've got a really neat take on the folding city bike that you can tote around with you through transit. So the whole idea behind these um, is just that you can get them down to the smallest cross-sectional area so that you can basically take them as a carry-on luggage for a train or for a bus. It hasn't really caught on in North America yet, but I think in Europe it's quite popular. So the reason I like this one is they've actually done away with the traditional drivetrain and they've got it all internal to the frame. It's a really cool folding mechanism and it goes down super compact. So the, the great thing is you don't have any greasy chain or drivetrain that's sticking out and going to get your pants dirty uh, while you're carrying it around. But it's also so compact and so clever with how it folds. Now, unfortunately, this all comes at a price, and it's $3,500, um, which is quite a lot to be paying for a bike that uh, you only ride on the rare occasion. Or I guess some people would be riding them quite frequently, but uh, compared to what most people perceive uh, as price for a road bike or for a dry bike, um, this seems like quite a lot, but cool nonetheless. City bikes, um, definitely an interesting area. I, I don't even know if they're really called city bikes or what you'd technically call them, but the folding bikes that you see a lot of Europeans using um, hasn't caught on in North America at all. But I think there's a lot of potential there because it really opens up, especially in a city like Toronto, where the transit's acceptable, um, but not acceptable <laughs> is like a, is like is as good is is probably being generous. <laughs> okay. Uh, but it'll get you in the general vicinity of where you might work, plus or minus several kilometers. Um, so having this little folding bike can really make your commute a lot shorter. So if you've got to walk 10 or 15 blocks from your, your transit stop, then having this bike really opens up so many opportunities. Um, so having something compact, something lightweight, something efficient, especially something with an electric motor, like that could be a game changer for a lot of people. And while I initially said $3,500 was a lot, um, if you don't need a car instead and you don't need to pay car insurance, then that cost is offset very, very quickly. Oh, absolutely. And when you said that you know folks don't use them frequently, I would challenge that. I think the people that are using folding bikes are using them for commuting, which means it's 
you know, a daily affair for them. It, the distances might not be very long, but uh, um, the the use frequency, I think, is probably pretty high for most most people. Yeah, and I realized as soon as I said that, I shouldn't have said that. <laughs> but uh, <laughs> once, once it's out on the internet, it's forever. That's uh, it. You're done. Yep. 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 So, but the, the one thing I would like to see, um, and I think it started in Europe, is mo not mobile charging stations, but uh, like bike rack charging stations for e-bikes. Um, oh, that cool. will be this, the same way that you see like Tesla superchargers. That opens up a lot of opportunities for long distance travels for EV. Um, same thing for e-bikes. If you can find a couple charging stations along your ride. I mean, even, even if you only plug in for five minutes, then you can get that extra little zip home. Absolutely. Um, and this is a great segue to e-bikes, which is uh, which you spent quite a bit of time looking at um, by the sounds of it, or at least thinking about <laughs> and and, uh, and talking to us about. So let's uh, let's listen to that segment. E-bikes are something that I think we could spend an entire podcast or probably a number of different podcasts going over. And just the incredible variations you see and complexity and just different markets are going for with e-bikes is, is pretty interesting. So one side of things, you see the city commuters where if you're going to and from work, you don't want to work up a sweat. So instead of doing maybe 200 watts or 250 watts for 10 or 15 minutes, um, you can now do 100 or 120 watts and essentially get there in the same amount of time. So that's great if you want to show up to a meeting and not be covered in sweat or not have to change when you get into work. Um, so the, the commuter bike, I totally understand that. Uh, what I was surprised to see was actually some of the, the really high-end bikes offering this e-bike this e capability. And this was not limited to just one high-end manufacturer, but everyone's getting in on this. And they've done such a good job at integrating this into the design of the frame that you would hardly even know there's a battery in there. Um, now, this does mean it's slightly reduced capacity. But if you're going out for a road ride and you've got uh, a friend who's slightly faster than you, this gives you the opportunity now to, to keep up to them on the, the tougher climbs or on headwinds or something like that. So it actually can make it more competitive or more interesting for multiple people in a ride where you've got different levels of rider strength. So that's just one side of things. The, the other is actually um, going the complete opposite direction where we've got these folding minimalist city bikes like Bromptons. And the idea with those, as I mentioned in the, the previous segment, was that you can actually fold them up, carry them around on transit. So when you have this combined with uh, a small electric motor in the hub, um, and for these I usually saw it in the front hub, um, but it was, it was able to provide this option where you've now essentially got a second motorized vehicle. Um, so you can take a bus and then use your bike to get to and from your house or from your office. But it was uh, a really neat extension um, on a lightweight e-bike, and it's a pretty interesting way to get around. So when we start to see this kind of pervasive attitude towards e-bikes, um, it's, it's only a matter of time before it really gets into every area of the, the different bike industry. Um, so the other thing that, that's interesting about this is the, uh, just the penetration, the market penetration we're seeing in Europe versus North America. Now, don't quote me on these numbers because this is just off the, uh, off the tip of my brain, but um, I remember hearing that it was something between 30 and 50% of bikes sold in Europe are e-bikes, but North America is somewhere between 2 and 5%. 
Um, so while that number is growing quickly, we still have a long way to catch up in North America. It's just not cool. It's not, uh, it's not popular yet. But it's a really interesting area of the market to see how it evolves because there's all this opportunity for, uh, for manufacturers to come up with new ideas and creative ways to get people interested in e-bikes. And it really is the future from, from what I'm looking at because if you want to get to and from work or uh, to go shopping or something like that, an e-bike makes a ton of sense compared to a car, um, especially if it's just minimal cargo that you're carrying. So it's just, uh, it's such a logical step. So I think it's only a matter of time before it catches on. And of course, there's going to be the economies of scale. So as something like this becomes more popular, there'll be increased production volumes, which means it will now be cheaper to buy your next e-bike. So combining that with the changing attitudes in North America, I think the next five or so years are going to be quite interesting in the bike industry. Notes from the e-bikes, there's a lot of them, (laughs) is the general (laughs) note, Uh, and they are coming. So in North America, it hasn't caught on yet, but it's only a matter of time. Like seeing the momentum in Europe right now, it's you should be considering one right now if you don't already, or if you haven't already considered one. Uh, But yeah, there's so many cool options out there now. You know what? I think that I, I I couldn't agree with you more. And I think the stigma, there is a little bit of a stigma in the, maybe the the snootier um, cycling communities and you know who you are about e-bikes, about calling them cheating and about call, you know, about denigrating people on them. Um, and to be perfectly honest, if I can put my, if I'm going to put myself on the line here, if I'm riding my, my road bike on the roads and I get passed by somebody and I'm like, that's an e-bike. That's my immediate, <laughs> that's my immediate thought. And then I, I have kind of a negative, uh, gut reaction, but it, that's, that's stupid. I, I'll call myself out on that. Um, I think as far as a, as a, commuter uh, vehicle or it's 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 brilliant i think um especially the pedal assist bikes which yeah i agree with you is, is a regulatory is a regulatory requirement um if you have to do if you have to pedal if it's clearly not uh, a motorized vehicle or purely motorized vehicle um it's uh, it's a great way to get around and also now that i have two kids uh, and a double bike trailer and you know toronto is not an exceedingly hilly city but holy smokes, like, I don't know if anyone listening who's, who rides around the city, um, we often will go up uh, the Pottery Road climb, which is a common climb in the East End coming out of the Don Valley. It's not long and it's not steep. And if you're solo, it's a good, you know, it's good for hill training. But pulling two kids up that incline on a mountain bike with a, also probably like a 40 pound trailer. Yeah, I don't want to do that. That's a lot of work. And I'm, I would say I'm stronger than average cyclist. So having a little bit of e-assist there would, would make my life a lot better. And it would encourage me to go out more. And again, like I'm probably stronger than the average person, um, taking the average sort of, you know, the average mom or dad out there towing his or her kids around. Uh, I could see a huge use case for, for e-bikes. The other thing too is, you can still take a power meter and measure your actual power. So you can still get a good workout, but you can do things uh, like people do motor pacing as training for high cadence work, like high speed, high cadence work. You can do that with an e-bike. You don't need to have like a, a vehicle to draft off of to do that. So you you can still train on them normally. And it opens up some options too for um, like if you get stuck or if you get tired or injured or something out on a ride, you can get home a lot easier if you're on an e-bike. 
Yeah. And I like what you said too, about it opening up some avenues for uh, training with your peers who may be stronger than you. Um, that is something that, for instance, for me in my capacity as a coach is something that is, is super valuable. Like there are times that I'm riding with somebody who is, you know, less strong than me, which is fine, which is great. But then there are other times that I've, I've, you know, I've got folks that are, that can kick my butt on the bike and uh, keeping up with like, keeping up with them for me is uh, even when they're doing an easy easy workout is, is, is difficult. So, um, I would, uh, I could see myself with an e-assist bike, uh, just to keep up with some of my speedier athletes. That would, uh, that would be, that would be super useful. Um, and I know there's a, there's a product out there. I forget what it's called. It's basically like added resistance on your, on your front hub, I believe. Um, Yes, I think it's the Air Hub. The Air Hub, that's right. So this is kind of the inverse of that. So there, there, if you're a superstar, you put one of these on your bike. Also, if you live in, you know, if you live in a flat area and you need some extra resistance, you don't have hills. Um, but this is the this is kind of the inverse case. So yeah, I think there could be a lot of really interesting use cases, and I think the snobbery around e-bikes. I mean, ultimately, it's going to be you know the masses are going to dictate what what happens and what uh, what what's adopted, and I'm I'm confident that e-bikes are are the way forward too. It's only a matter of time. Only a matter of time. Uh, well, with that discussion, let's move on to a little bit more detail and look at the drivetrains for e-bikes. I'm actually going to spend a little more time talking about e-bikes because I find it a really interesting area. Uh, one of the things I want to point out is uh, the differences that there are in drivetrains. So a lot of them are based on some kind of torque multiplication or some factor of your input torque. Um, so you need to have this initial torque at the pedals in order to get the, the output. Um, this actually isn't a physics or physical requirement, but it's more of a legal requirement because I think the ultimate classification ends up as a motorcycle in some jurisdictions if you can just turn on the motor and drive and use a button to, to power it. Um, and from what I've heard, it does feel much more natural when you're doing this. You just feel like a stronger rider uh, when you're riding. So each pedal stroke has just that much more force to it. Um, so this is something that's commonly done with e-bikes uh, when you get this torque transferred to the rear tire because that's all you're really interested in is increasing the traction force, which makes you go faster. The most common method that I saw for this uh, e-bike implementation was probably the mid-mounted motor. So this method takes a motor at the bottom bracket and supplements your input force with additional torque applied to the chain ring, uh, meaning that your whole drivetrain is withstanding this additional force. So you're loading up the chain and chain ring with and cassette with this higher force, and it could mean more wear and tear on your bike. So instead of uh, a continuous, say, 450 watts, you might be seeing... Um, 200, or sorry, instead of a, a continuous 200 watts that you'd normally be seeing, you might be seeing 450 watts when you have that additional power added to it. Um, so it can load things up a little bit more than you would expect. <clears throat> uh, the way this works is that there's typically an upper limit to the amount of power that uh, that's supplied to these motors. Um, 250 watts seems to be where it peaks out, and again, I think that's a regulation limit. So they could actually provide a lot more torque or power, depending on how you look at it, for short periods of time before overheating the motor, but it's more a question of what you're legally allowed to do. Um, and that would, again, go into the classification of having an electric motorbike as opposed to an e-bike. I believe in Germany there's actually a few different regulations or classes of these e-bikes and you can get ones that will go up to 45 kilometers an hour which is getting pretty quick 
But in order to do this, um, you need to have, for example, like a different helmet, you need to have a license, you might need to have insurance, um, since essentially you're riding a motorcycle at this point. But nonetheless, it's the same basic principle with how the power gets to the ground. So these mid-mounted motors are very popular, um, especially with mountain bikes. Almost every e-mountain bike that I had, or that I saw, had this mid-mounted motor. And I think one of the big advantages is that it always stays with the bike. Uh, if you need to change wheels, or if you get a flat tire and want to swap something out, or if you want to upgrade your wheels to like lighter carbon wheels, um, then you've always got the motor in the frame. And the, the physical location is also very close to the battery, so you don't have the wiring hanging out. The other method that's really common is hub-mounted motors. These still take battery power and some input torque from the crank, and they, they measure some input torque from the crank, um, but instead that they, they supplement the torque directly in the rear wheel. So in this case, your drivetrain isn't being loaded up. Um, it's just the spokes, essentially, that are seeing that additional torque and the, the tires. Um, so with these, you've got a motor controller, which is basically uh, a, bunch, a bunch of fancy switches, and it transfers the electricity from a 24-volt or 36-volt DC battery to a three-phase AC signal, uh, which, is used, which is what's used to drive brushless motors. So you've got this electronic control, which provides great torque and control and amazing responsiveness, and it's all mounted in the rear hub with only the three wires coming from the, the battery and motor controller to the, uh, to the motor itself. Um, so it's very easy to and very simple to retrofit a bike using something like this. And a lot of manufacturers that are kind of exploring this e-bike territory and more of the um, more of the, the factory look or like the, the traditional road bike looking e-bike, um, they're using the hub-mounted motors because you don't have to have this massive bottom bracket that's trying to house a motor and gear train in it. Um, the other e-bikes are leaning more towards the mid-mounted motors, like the e-mountain the e bikes are a great example. Um, and this works well when you have more of a clean sheet design where you're not trying to share existing carbon molds, you're not trying to make it look like a traditional bike. Uh, and they can put these drivetrains on um, and they can be very robust in their design um, and they ultimately end up um, just, they look the part a little bit more, I'd say, rather than something that seems like an afterthought. Um, one other area that I wanted to mention, uh, it's kind of interesting, but to be honest, a little bit hokey, but uh, trying to retrofit your current bike into an e-bike. The one system that I saw and liked the most basically looked like a second chain ring on the non-drive side. So this chain ring, um, it was actually a brushless motor that supplemented your crank torque as if you can kind of think of it as if you were on a tandem bike and you have someone else pedaling along with you driving that chain ring and transferring all the power through that. Um, so it would use this chain ring, I'll call it, on the non-drive side and the motor would try and spin your crank for you. Um, so this one for me was really slick in terms of a retrofit. Uh, it looked a little interesting when when you see it uh, applied to a bike but honestly it was the the cleanest looking retrofit I saw because the battery itself was the shape of a water bottle so you could easily attach it to your frame <clears throat> and it ended up being a pretty clever system overall um, not particularly cheap I think it was still in the uh, like the the 1200 to 1500 euro range depending on what size battery you got but um, it, it was a neat system for sure 
There were a few others that I saw that were maybe a little bit more sketchy, for lack of a better term, um, and they'd use this roller that was pressed up against the tire to power the wheels. So it's almost like the opposite of what you would usually, or what you used to see with uh, fluid trainers. Um, so the problem I had with this is you're now rubbing off all your, your nice tire tread that you spent a lot of money on in order to propel the bike. And there was also quite a range in what was available for these systems. So there was one that would, from what I saw, uh, retrofit in a minute or two. And this was actually a pretty clever system. And I think they started out as a Kickstarter. I can't recall the company name right now. But the updated design they had was uh, their second attempt at it. And it was uh, this integrated unit could be swapped out really quickly. Um, but the, uh, yeah, you're still at the limitation of the, the fact that you're trying to transmit all of the torque through the, um, through the tread of the tire, which will wear it down pretty quickly. The one that I didn't particularly like was a roller that would engage from under the bottom bracket. So you have to somehow figure out how to attach it first off, which the bottom bracket can be tons of different designs. And I think they just had something that was like drilled and tapped in there. So it was kind of a, a bit of a rough around the edges integration. Um, but when you need this motor, um, this, this roller would swing out and it would engage the, the tire to drive it. And their sample actually used a mountain bike tire, which I thought was an interesting choice. But because of the small diameter and the knobby mountain bike tire, it just made an absolute ton of noise. Like it howled while it was going. Um, so, and to be honest, the whole thing just kind of looked like a recipe for disaster, where you could get like uh, pant legs, clothes, occasional small animals caught in it, um, just anything that happens to be nearby. And to be honest, I can only see this causing problems down the road. Uh, one design that I'll give huge props to was actually a really novel system that turned the, the brake rim into a motor. How they did this was maybe not the most practical way, but it does show great, uh, like great creative thinking. Um, I believe the company was called RH Bike. Uh, their marketing material wasn't great, and I believe they were from Slovakia, so their English wasn't great either. Um, had a few issues communicating. But um, their system basically used a whole bunch of permanent magnets mounted around the brake rim and a couple of coils mounted between the, the seat stay and the chain stay. Um, controlling these coils, so basically turning them on and off at different times, uh, turned the whole rim into a linear motor. Um, as the different magnet poles are coming by, you want to engage and, or energize and de-energize the, the different coils to attract and repel the magnets and that will force the rotation. Um, so this is ultimately how a brushless motor works inside, um, but this is just a brushless motor that used the entire rim. Um, one of the really neat things about it is that because it acts at a very large radius, you can get a fair amount of torque out of it. Um, I think they were saying like 500 watts and it was a claimed weight of around 1300 grams which is actually pretty competitive compared to a lot of the, the standard motors. And this one was, um, the design could use some polishing, so I bet you could save a lot of weight off that as it was. Um, the main issue I have with this is just the, the cost and how delicate permanent magnets can be. Um, so in my past with the, the bike trainer, I've bought tons of these and they are definitely not cheap. And the other issue is trying to place them. Um, it, it would be a nightmare trying to fit these around the rims because uh, permanent magnets, the uh, neodymium magnets, end up being super strong. So you can't get them anywhere near each other without attracting them. 
Um, so it would have been a huge pain to try and install these all on the rim. Um, so I see it as being just a very neat system, but it's not quite there yet in terms of practicality. But I do love to see this kind of creative and innovative thinking. Super cool. I can't, uh, I, I would never have imagined that there are just so many options. The The linear motor one is my personal favorite. Sort of, it's, it's you know, not dissimilar from your, your trainer technology, right? Yeah, and that's why it caught my eye. But it's very interesting application. Um, yeah, maybe not the most cost effective, but it just shows that people are thinking. And that's what I like to see. And maybe this doesn't result in a, a, a big use case, but maybe it leads to something else that's a little bit more practical. Cool. Yeah, this was legitimately my favorite of the of the discussions that you sent in, mostly because I'm, you know, I'm a nerd and, you know, coming from an engineering <laughs> background. So this kind of stuff, um, you know, gets my brain gears going. Uh, so this is uh, I really enjoyed this one. Then. Thank you. And then, Andrew, you had some uh, some closing remarks. And with that, I think that's where I'll wrap it up for now. Uh, I could honestly talk for days about all the different tech that I saw, and with 1,400 exhibitors, um, there's endless things to talk about at the show. And I'm sure that there were many, many things that I missed that were quite interesting. But uh, I did try to provide a little explanation of what I saw and why I thought it was neat and worth, worth bringing up. Um, but Eurobike itself is a very interesting place. Right now, it's the biggest industry trade show because Interbike, the competitor, um, which used to be in Las Vegas and then last year was moved to Reno, was actually canceled. Um, they officially say on hiatus, but to be honest, like having been there for a couple of years, the writing was on the wall. It was shrinking quite rapidly and kind of circling the, the toilet. Um, and yeah, registration was down, the, the lack of interest was down, or the, the interest overall was down. Um, so Eurobike itself is just absolutely massive. Um, and the really neat thing about it is you're not in a place like Vegas. It's actually this small town in Germany, which is about 20,000 people. Um, so each, every couple of weeks, um, there's a different trade show held at this, this hall. And the entire city is built around this hall and 30 to 40,000 people come into town, which is like doubles or triples the population. So everything is really expensive and accommodations are really difficult to find. Um, you're dealing with like huge traffic lineups getting into the trade show. Um, so there's all these logistical problems, but uh, despite that, um, very interesting place. Um, and, you know, very cool to, to uh, take part in something like this. So I really enjoyed my time here and I'm definitely looking forward to going back next year. 